in the United Kingdom and in many parts of the world, billions have been invested into things like renewable energy. So offshore wind farms are a classic example, which would not have happened in around the shores of the United Kingdom without a huge multi-billion pound investment program from the, from the, from the government. We need that same thing into how we make wood. It's not a question of, there are some things available, but quite frankly, factories that currently saw timber need to have much more investment in order to take it to that secondary processing level. He is Dougal Driver, the CEO of Grown in Britain, and he's coming next on Tree Lady Talks. This week's Tree Lady Talks is all about the Grown in Britain Week, 10th to the 16th of October, and it includes the Forestry Conference on the 12th. Now, whether we like it or not, and we probably all know this by now, our environments are changing and will continue to change for decades to come. The question is, how can we best act to make these changes as positive as possible? You're listening to... So let's hear from Dougal Driver. Dougal, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Sharon. Dougal, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Well, I'm a forester, first and foremost. It was my first uh, profession. Um, Went to work in the woods at the age of 17 and uh, subsequently became the uh, chartered um, rural surveyor as well. And I'm also a chartered environmentalist as well. So um, I'm not uh, only a forester, I would say, uh, in that sense. Um, I have had a mixed career. I've worked uh, in the woods for several years and I've also worked uh, for the Ministry of Defence Estate. I had a a pretty full career with Defence Estates um, after leaving college and then moved more into the world of central departments, DEFRA and CLG as it was, and uh, advised ministers and did a few things um, that had nothing to do with trees, woods and forests up until around 2011 when I when I left. And um, in 2012-13, I, I helped form and then run Growing in Britain from that, from that point. And uh, the only other thing I'd say is th- throughout my sort of working in this, this DEFRA and the Ministry of Defence, I... I also was an advisor for the Timber Growers Association, and which became Confederation of Forest Industries (CONFOR) as it's now known, and and that kept my feet sort of in the private sector uh, whilst I was doing sort of advising ministers and and things like that. So when when Growing in Britain formed, and I I started, if you like, my current career, um, I felt you know in a reasonably good place to have had that sort of public, private, and, and indeed NGO experience to do it. Wow, that's a really good cross-section. I think it's great, actually, if anybody works in the private sector, to have some local authority or public sector or government background or vice versa, so you can see the whole picture. It's the case with my career. But what triggered Grown in Britain to start? Well, it was... Um... It was the I, 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 the first words that always come out of my mouth on this are the march on London by mm. people who cared about trees, woods, and forests when mm. it was threatened that the public forest estate in England was to be sold off. It's when there was one commission across the UK, and um, the quango of bonfires led to all kinds of things being considered to be privatised. And there was, a, I think, it was probably a leak uh, that the forestry commission might be subject to privatisation, and mm. It was at the same time that if you've got 100,000 signatures, you can have a discussion in Parliament about the subject. And it was, I think it was the first potentially that got that. So sort of middle England marched on on London. Um, The people, the good people, bit further north than you, sort of East Anglia, Thetford Forest, and then Forest of Dean. And uh, eventually the Secretary of State was... um, Rather unceremoniously removed from post, and um, the it was a it was a U-turn. Said, "Don't worry, we're not going to sell it." And subsequently, all sort of chancellors and budgets have then do anything remotely getting close to selling off the public forest estate because of that incredible uprising. And that, and and the sector and government sort of sat down and realised there was this, there was these issues with forestry because at the same time, a lot of talk was going on about undermanaged woods and the level of imports. 
um, and it, it just brought everything to do with the sector to the public attention and society, yes. and a, and a logical response from um, some sensible people who formed a you know a panel, uh, which then had some recommendations, was that that sort of supply chain issue was possibly at the crux of it, and that's what formed the the kernel of the idea of grown in Britain. Excellent. So this was about sort of oh, 11, 11 years ago, and it was a real big issue. And I think lots of people for the first time were thinking about trees. Of course, now trees are on most people's minds. Um, how that translates to action is another matter. But it was the first uprising probably about trees since perhaps the sort of early 70s with Dutch elm disease. Um, so, yes, this fantastic report that came out of a committee, part of that was about supply chain. So when you started growing in Britain, um, it's been going now successfully for over 10 years. Try and describe it in a nutshell, particularly for our um, audience in America and in other parts of Europe. So, um, yeah, we, our, 10th birthday, our official 10th birthday is next year, and it still feels like we're, we're quite young. Um, but the, the, there will be parts of the world that understand the importance of local supply chains and buying local and using local circular economies. And the United Kingdom is a huge sort of net importer of forest products. Mm. So um, you combine that with a country that has a percentage of forest and woodland cover that is really low, really low, really low compared to Europe and really low compared globally. And you combine that with the third factor, which is government statistics, say, indicate that towards, and when we started, it was more than 50%. It's now slightly less than 50% of our woodlands were undermanaged. Mm. So we're importing a lot. We're importing a lot of value there because you tend to import things that are a little bit more processed than they might be in their raw state. And it also makes us vulnerable, doesn't it, Dougal? Because it, the world is changing so rapidly and we've only got to look at what's very sadly happening in Ukraine um, and supply chains are being affected it's about a vulnerability to this country amongst anything else would you agree uh, I, yes I do and I think I think that the the, the reason why Grunia Britain came into being in in sort of 2013 is it came back again for another big push which was ex- sort of climate change so um, in many parts of the world, Extinction Rebellion were marching. So you had another wave of what are we going to do about climate change? So we need mm. more trees, you know, and that, that the, 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 the current UK government was elected into power on the basis that it was going to plant lots and lots of trees. And indeed, um, all of the potential parties fighting for that. So there, there's so many factors. And then you add on international supply chain issues and the inability to get materials moved around the world quickly. And I'm sure that all countries, you know, suffer from this. And you sort of think, well, why would I be exporting my material? We're a net importer, but I can imagine Mm. some countries might say, well, why am I exporting Mm. this material when I need it to build up my own society? So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's, again, there's this wave of support for what we do, which is, which is great. It was, it's been hard, it's hard work to set up as, we're essentially a certification body and that, that involves a track record and standards and a robust, resilient sort of business case for people to use your certification. So it's quite hard to start a certification business because mm. you need to build trust. But but now we're sort of approaching our 10th anniversary. The, the world is very much in our favour. And, and so many things we've been doing without all of those pressures that you mentioned, mm. and now they've come to bear, we're in a very good place to, to help people uh, source locally. And also you know, add value locally as well and use what is an amazing material. I mean, done in the right way through well-managed woods in a sustainable manner. Wow, what a material. That, that we, what a material. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, I'm just going to go back a few steps because what you've just said is there's so much to say in those few sentences. Um, but just to let listeners know that Grain in Britain is a not-for-profit organisation. Um, and to, to really talk about quality and to get people thinking widely about the material of wood. Um, and the certification scheme, could you just describe how that works? 
Yeah, so people around the world might be familiar with Forestry Stewardship Council or uh, PEFC as well. There are two sort of major international certification bodies. Some countries do have a national certification body, and North America has has one. Um, and we are we are a national certification body, so we check for sustainability and legality as would international certification. But what we add on top is provenance, so it's yes. from the which um, for for you know the international certifiers you know don't because you can mix things from different countries as long as it meets their standard etc. But we don't. It's absolutely one hundred percent does does what it says on the tin really grown in, grown in Britain. So the certification is 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 very robust. It's been independently checked. We have a two year review cycle with an independent committee etc. So it, it, it it's great and it's a chain of custody certificate and um, the trademarks that come with it are awarded by the intellectual property office etc so um we, we're we're um, proud of all our certificate holders who make amazing materials from construction mm. through furniture and um you know what what but we're not just the certification body no. Sharon. well because we came from that passion of don't sell off our forests and we come from that societal cultural background we also invest a lot in um so if we make a surplus from our not-for-profit activity we invest it in research and development into products that we might we might bring from halfway around the world that we don't make here and we sell a lot of it and we use a lot of it we will try and um process and add value here in the United Kingdom. I think that's a lesson throughout the world that we should we do it with people do it with food, we do it with lots of things. And timber seems to be a commodity that seems to be shipped around the world unnecessarily sometimes. Now there are there are instances where ships literally cross like this with a material to make something and then the finished product goes back the other way. And it's a bit crazy at times. And we're, we're trying to do something about that. Well, in coming back to the grown in Britain, the ethos of using local timber, or at least timber grown in, in Britain. Um, I'm hoping that that's becoming more popular and I'm hoping that some procurement chains are actually seeking that it is grown in Britain. And I note that you have a procurement policy that people a sort of template on your website. Um, have you found that in the last couple of years, in particular with more discussions of circular economy, um, that the requirement for British timber is growing? Yes, absolutely. We've, 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 it's a, I mean, I have post-it notes here with, with, with organisations I'm talking to about procurement at the moment. Mm. And it, it's quite hard for some organisations to, to change quickly, perhaps on some of these issues, because these policies are embedded in quite complex organisations and structures. But um, I don't take many prisoners on this, Sharon, because no. if you don't look locally fast and look at your own estate first and look at your own country first and your own economy first and your own biodiversity first, then you are devolving and delegating your responsibilities for climate change and uh, biodiversity to other people who live somewhere else in another country. That's really quite arguably quite an irresponsible thing to do if, if, if you can't, if you haven't considered other alternatives. We have a, we our procurement policy is a hierarchical one where we, we don't say it's growing in Britain or nothing. It's this is where you should start and you should yes. try, you should you should turn over as many stones as possible in order to source it that way. Um, you may not be able to get what you want. It may be, um, you know, timing, etc. Fine. You might need to go elsewhere. But to not have that policy in place is something that we we do push. We have a lot of people knocking on the door, as you say. Um, we've worked with some great great companies and we're working with more and more who are, who are taking this on board. And, and of course, if I may go on, Please it's don't. a fantastic story to tell to Please. your customers and your shareholders. Let's be a yes. little bit, you know, let's just be a bit commercial for once. If you mm-hmm. haven't got the emotional sort of climate change driven local is best philosophy built throughout your organisation, well, why not think about what your shareholders, your customers, or your staff might think? Because I bet your bottom dollar they they will actually be really, really keen to be able to, to, to support those supply chains. So it's, it's quite frankly, it's win-win. I agree. And actually what you've said there is, is why wouldn't we try and use local timber because of all those multifaceted benefits of good woodland management for biodiversity? I mean, I think there is still a lot of perception by some of the public that woodlands must never be managed 
because they're good for wildlife. But we know that actually appropriate, sustainable woodland management can increase biodiversity. It can provide local employment, which is great. You know, people are wanting to have a job that's more practical, that's out in nature. Um, you're keeping the carbon local. You know, you're, you're felling something locally, locking it into a product locally. And I think people like that. They, they do. Sorry to interrupt, but I really want to pick up on a, a vital point that you just hit on th- through that comment, which was about the importance of woodland management to yes. others. And uh, if because there is a, often a protectionist approach to woodland management, and let me just cap, let me just put this into perspective. I'm not talking about parts of the world where the forests are wild. I'm not talking no. about special areas that are restricted for their ancient veteran trees or for their special habitats because they're wild places untouched largely by man or they're special reserves or special places for um, keep out type. Ab- absolutely. I, I, I was going to say that as well. In managed wooden scenarios, which is a lot of the temperate world, for instance, and a lot of obviously other parts of the world, if you don't go in and manage, you're actually causing more damage. And I, I will, I, to, to get a reaction, I will say the sound of a chainsaw is a good thing. Whereas the sound of a chainsaw to some people means I've got to ring somebody up and get something to be stopped because it sounds like, you know, they're felling trees. And it's just that sort of publicity in, in, in a managed woodland scenario is something that we really take on because we understand that we understand that the light to the forest floor, for instance, is absolutely vital. A dark managed woodland um, with no light getting to the forest floor is, is not going to have the biodiversity for obvious reasons. If you don't have flowers, you don't have nectar, you don't have insects, and insects are not only part of um, other you know, an- animal supply chains, they're also pollinators of the crops that exist in the fields next to the woods. And so it's really important to have mixed woods with mixed species and with light sort of in different levels going through the canopy. And you only really get that in the managed forest areas by managing because they're, they're not natural natural wild areas that are subject to, to natural um, influences necessarily. So I think, I think uh, you know, I, I, I kind of get on my high horse a little bit and do get a bit, a bit point the finger when I see good, good timber, good trees going to waste because they're not thinned. Um, they're not thinned so that the timber's concentrated on fewer stems so it can become soaring material for planks, which can make construction, et cetera. And maybe that material is imported from somewhere else. It's just, it just, it just drives me a little crazy, actually. And I was coming back to my point there, which because I always, I always go off to the the, the kind of uh, trade in timber thing a little bit too easily, is that the moment you thin those trees out and light floods to the forest floor, the flowers bloom, the insects thrive, the birds thrive, the whole cycle of life is enhanced. It's, it's a no-brainer. I'm very frustrated, actually, about urban timber. So I work in construction a lot in London and sometimes trees need to be felled either because of their poor health or because of a change of land use and replanting is a subject for other podcasts. I've been working hard with others to actually have that timber reuse and I've looked into this quite deeply and I've been really heartened by a couple of sawmills who will take away Um, amenity trees that have been felled for whatever reason season them and then use them locally for sculpture furniture and I know that lots of local authorities Camden for example are are actively using this as a policy I've used it on some construction sites where um, I've got children involved with various things to do with the timber that's felled but I going back to an earlier point you made about shareholders and members of the public I think that story behind something that grew, that lived in that area, was felt for whatever reason, hopefully a really good one, was made into something that people can touch and see and use, is is within our DNA. It's deeply satisfying. It's also good PR. And um, I was very heartened to see in the London plan, the circular economy policy, which I believe that timber is part of. But I have gone a little bit off-piste. But um, I, I always like to bring in the urban and the city tree. And I think that we're moving in the right direction, but we must consult the tree, tree surgeons and maybe there'll be a, a best practice guide on that in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, the thing about urban fringe, urban trees, whether you're in the middle of a city 
anywhere in the world, or whether you're in the suburbs or the edges, or you're in the towns and the villages, the point is about those trees is they're the ones that people see and are connected to. Mm. And it's not everybody that can get out into the wilds, get to the forest, get exactly. to the big woods that are more remote, more rural. And the understanding is therefore different, potentially. And I think the job there is a, there's a there's a arguably a harder job around education as well. That um, often trees in these scenarios, as you well know, are considered to be problems rather than assets. And even though there's huge amounts of work across the world uh, on valuing the assets of trees within a city or within a community, and huge numbers attached to them as well, as, as, mm, you, well, as mm. you well know, there's still there is still this uh, thought that some, sometimes there are problems. And and that's a real shame. I, I also think that we should blend a lot more our, our thinking as you're doing in this interview with someone who's a, who's a forester and not an arborist, I'm a forester. But that, that we should blend uh, our thinking and our knowledge and experience much more than we, we do. Um, because and I think and I, I I'll come on to that through the other parts of the supply chain if I may because I mm. one thing we're doing growing in Britain that we're really keen to do is to go the other way as well and to actually start to blend the knowledge and the skills from inside the woodland gate to the sawmill to the secondary processors mm -hmm. to the furniture makers and to the construction industry a bit bit like you said about the material being taken away and brought back because it gets lost. That story does get lost along the way. If you if you go into a builder's merchant, you go into the timber section, you have no idea where that material comes from. There's no connect. It's a piece of four before. It's a piece. It's a piece. It's a plank. It's a whatever it might be. And we're really determined that. Um, and we have a pro we have a program to, to to look at this that we've just just sort of starting to try and engage people right through the supply chain. And that's what we do. We work with construction companies. And we work with. Um, furniture makers as much as we work with growers and landowners it's it's arguably more important because it's the demand pull end as well yes yes and are you finding that people are more open to using british timber and that there's more demand of it and indeed is there a premium the point about british timber compared to perhaps alternative timber is that that i think i think all local wood gets a gets a bit of a bad rap probably as a, as opposed to say something you you might buy uh, that's been Im imported. And I've got a bit of a theory about this, which is it's interesting. It'd be interesting if, if what people think around the world, actually. But I have my theory is because, because like I say, there's a there's some there's anecdotal evidence that oh, British timber isn't any good for this because it grows too fast or it's too knotty or it's got too much character or what whatever it might be because of our climate. But I think if you export timber or any product, you're not going to export the mixed. To the to the poor quality and in any woodland in any part of the world any forest the products will range from good quality to not so good quality mm -hmm. it's natural but do you do you prepare wrap send ship every bit of the woodland across the, the seas across the world no you you don't want that return to you on the no. boat do you you put the good stuff on so everybody says oh you should see this stuff that i've got from here this country or that country, it's excellent. There's not a blemish on it. Well, mm. well, yeah, but they don't want it back. But if it's the sawmill up the road, they're going to try and sell everything they've sold. And I'm, it might be a theory that can be proven wrong, but I'm pretty sure if you're in those countries that sent the good stuff to us, back at home, there's all the other stuff that wasn't sent. Having a, like the cobbler's children's shoes, you know, it's a bit like being in my world and sometimes my garden's a bit of a mess quite frankly so I think that's partly human nature we want to display our best selves so has that in the past affected the demand for timber but I do sense speaking to so many people and reading widely beyond the industry that there is a hunger for authenticity for circularity in the economy and also um, the social the social and the well-being aspect of local timber and people having the opportunity to work with that. There's a really good example that I know you started um, with Silver, the Silver Foundation last year. Perhaps you could tell us about the summer school last year. Yeah, well, and, and it's about to happen again in, in early oh. September, which is fantastic. So um, we work with a, with a number of partner organisations because there are people who do, do things better than we do, but we might be able to augment what they do. So... We have just, if I may mention a few other things to do with um, the Silver Foundation in, in mm. Oxford, in, in England, 
We have a field trial there of um, thermally modified ash and sycamore cladding on the buildings. <laughs> We've um, been involved in a design competition there for, for, for buildings. We have uh, a woodland there on site. And we also work with them on a number of projects to engage with um, hard to reach woodland owners across England who might uh, who, who maybe struggle to get access to, to woodland management. But coming back to the summer school, the uh, it's it's it, it, in in essence it's about those makers who are going to work with the material whether they're young or experienced but on the whole maybe may young and um, we absolutely loved last year because there was a focus on female and you know non-binary um, students to come into that that school because there there are some let's we've got to face up to this that the sectors that you and I work in are sometimes closed to some. Um, sectors of society it's not the most obvious route for people to have a career and we can we are not getting the, the we are not getting the best people necessarily if we close ourselves off can I just echo that I mean absolutely we are all working hard I mean listeners I have a role with the Institute of Charter Foresters which is a professional body and um, and I know the Abura Cultural Association are working incredibly hard as well just to say look folks this is a job don't think you have to look like this or be like that or talk like that you know just be the wonderful you and all the uniqueness of your personality and character and experience because that will create diversity in thought and therefore we can have greater progress we can get out of linear practices so absolutely I love this um, Silver Foundation and I'm going to give a spoiler here Dougal that um, I'm very privileged in that um, working with the Victorian Albert Museum, who are sponsoring this current um, this current season, that Tree Lady Talks will be actually going down and, and talking to people and finding out more about it. How wonderful for people who don't have that background or daily experience of working with timber, they'll have their own ways of interpreting that. I just love throwing a subject open to a new audience, a new way of being. It's touched briefly on research and development. So if there's any any money made from certification scheme that you're looking at lots of different things. So one of them is construction, so new use of timber, which you touched on the Silver Foundation. But I also note that you have been doing some research on the non-plastic tree shelters. Is that something that you can update us on? I'll come back around to some of the um, more woody things we're doing as well. Yes. Quite a long list, but the with, um, Forest Canopy Foundation formed um, only about eighteen months ago. We, we, I, I helped them set up at their request, which was great. And we, we, we are um, a certifying body for the woodlands that they're creating, so that the designs are right. And I can come back to woodland creation design if you like. But we're also working yes. on woods into management metrics um, with their support. And they have a research and development program looking at alternatives to plastic or bad plastic tree shelters, um, which are ubiquitous, particularly in the United Kingdom and potentially elsewhere. The um, alternatives are quite varied. And um, what we do as an independent certification body is we just we sort of agreed their program, check their protocols. We monitor their um, research program. So it gives it a little bit of an arm's length independent uh, check on what they're doing so it's a it's a partnership um and and we're really pleased to be able to, to work with them on that i mean it it, it there's it, it could be an extraordinary development in terms of carbon footprint etc if we can find something that does bring on the trees protects from rabbits and deer and other things that might want to eat them and can be you know disposed of or it breaks down in a way that that suits, suits the environment it's a tricky thing to do technically mm. but um, there's some exciting products that are in those field trials and for those who don't work in forestry we really need tree shelters don't we to stop the young trees from being eaten by um, herbivores rabbits hares deer and uh, just to keep them growing up right I wonder what people do in other parts of the world so listeners do let us know through the usual channels. That's brilliant. And you talked about woodland creation. So what does good look like for you in terms of designing and planting a woodland that would meet not only future timber production, but all of those other biodiversity, perhaps access for people, etc., carbon, um, carbon storage, carbon credits. What does good look like for you, Dougal? 
we actually have launched a, a certification that, that does exactly that. It, it is it, There's a graphic equalizer that has a traffic light system of red, amber, green, and you can score on all these different facets that you mentioned. And people want new woodlands for different things. So we don't penalize somebody who wants a, a carbon-rich woodland or a biodiversity-rich woodland onto the, the, the open habitat that's being turned into a woodland. Um, but what we do is we, we ask a series of questions, over 100 questions to the designer, um, and that that designer, you know, scores it, and and those measures come through the design. We've got a, a technical advisory group that of, of the great and the good that have sat and got those questions right, and we've put um, numerous projects through through these these design metrics, and um, we have a, a system which means that they don't necessarily pass. Particularly, one thing we look at is what the owner's objectives are and the financial objectives are, because mm -hmm. too often we find with new woodlands is that a few years down the line, the owner says, well, I didn't really want that, or the, the, the investor doesn't invest in more woods. It's kind of a bit of a one-off. And we're just thinking that maybe in there is something about the objectives originally weren't reflected in the design. So we, we're very much, uh, we check that's the case and we make sure it's delivered. And we also have some what we call some red lines, which are just simply we, we, we're just not going to go down this route of, of putting it through the full metric if you're not prepared to do a few uh, of these things. And one of them is using uh, resi climate resilient species to a certain mm -hmm. uh, level, because it's pretty head in the sand if you think that you can just plant the same things you planted 20 years ago and they're going to survive pests and the diseases and the temperature changes, etc. Mm. So we don't want bad woods of the future like some of the woods we've already got. We want really good exemplary woods. And we also check that the plant sources are biosecure. In, in the UK, there's something called the Plant Healthy Scheme. And we, we make sure that all the plant supplies are from that plant healthy scheme. It is actually a global scheme. Anyone can apply for that across, across the world if they're going to be part of the UK supply chain. And um, the, the things like removing plastics from site within a certain period, uh, because you sometimes need, as you said, as we said earlier, plastic tree shelters. But and there's a number of red lines and, and it's to drive up the quality, actually. So I, I have to be honest. Um, I don't think the quality of new woods over the my life. I mean, I've been working now since <clears throat> far too long um, as I approach potentially sort of 40 years in this trade. And I don't think we've been the best at creating new woodlands. And I think when Growing in Britain's metric is designed to um, de-risk that and sort of put a level there. Well, apart from all the obvious reasons as, as why a, a potential woodland owner would go through that metric, what's in it for them? If they're also applying for government grants, maybe the Woodland Creation Scheme um, from the Forestry Commission, that's a level of process to go through and regulation. Yours isn't regulation as such. It's more a, a fantastic toolkit and analysis of getting the right type of woodland, which is almost future-proofed as far as we can tell. So what's in it for the owner to go through that process? Well, I can, I'll characterise it by one of the clients that's taking it up, which is um, a, a construction company, one of the biggest in the UK, wanted to offset its carbon footprint through planting trees. But it, it was circling the idea, not really getting the diligence it wanted mm -hmm. from what it was seeing as on offer. And so when um, we showed them this tool and how they could ensure that the woodlands that they invested in we're going to deliver these things because of the design checks we were going to do. And I, I failed to add, Sharon, that there are, we audit those woodlands for a minimum of 30 years after they're created. Fantastic. And that's built into a contract. So we, it, and it's at least 30 years. And this construction company, actually, it's 32 years. So the due diligence is really important for big, big, big corporates. It's like any other investment they might make. Mm. And the diligence around carbon it because it's a new investment maybe isn't as great as say if you're investing in stocks and shares or gilts or whatever it might be it's just another form of investment in a way and creating a woodland is is can be subject to so many vagaries it, it is quite a scary process to a corporate that doesn't necessarily know so in order to plant trees in the united kingdom at the moment in, in particularly in southern england the grants from the government and the benefits from selling the carbon are not necessarily enough on their own in the in the basic sense so we we sell it as sort of charismatic carbon with all of these other benefits coming i love that that's a 
best expression I have heard, charismatic carbon. Charismatic carbon is such an important thing because there are international markets whereby a company or an individual wanting to offset their carbon may invest in something that is unilaterally about carbon to the detriment of maybe local communities, biodiversity. Um, it literally is a, a one plantation of one thing and there are unintended consequences which are negative. And I see increasing understanding of the holistic benefits which you've described so well. But charismatic carbon, listen to that, folks. Use it widely. Sorry, Dougal, but that really tickled me. Do carry on. Let me let me spell let me explain some of the charisma on this particular project, yes. which is it's a fairly large project, but it's not untypical of what the, the, the metrics and the, the questions in the metrics can help you do. Because we have a theme on carbon, theme on timber, theme on soils, a theme on people and communities, one on biodiversity, water quality, air quality, etc. And um, what when in talking to the investors, those that make this happen, at the end of the day, you need quite a lot of money to create a really good new woodland at scale. And there is kilometres, miles of footpaths and access routes that have been joined up so that communities can, can enjoy them. There's um, desilting of a heritage site lake where, where these trees will stop um, soil flowing into the lakes. There's um, the, the biodiversity for the whole area is being enhanced dramatically. And the biodiversity net gain, which in the UK is soon to be a monetizable asset, Oh, yes. It's, it's significant. Then also what you can do is you can, because you're engaging with the investor, and we mentioned stakeholders and clients before, if, if not all investors want this, they just may want a cold, I want to just offset my carbon, and away you go. It's not for everybody. But this investor said, I'd quite like a, a veneer woodland. Now, we don't make many veneers in this country anymore at our timber. Mm. But we tend to export that skill, whereas we used to do a lot of it. And we had that conversation with them. They said, well, well, we'd like to have a veneer section to this. Ooh, that's exciting. So there's veneer species that have been put in so that in, you know, it, it's way beyond the lifetime of the executives who've made this financial investment. And that's another conversation you have to have is that this is not this is about investing in the future and it's future generations. It's got me really, really excited. And the other thing, um, because it's got me very passionate about this is that it may be the first thing that an organisation or a company has done, a public public company, that is open to the vagaries of the weather, that is something biological, whereas any other type of investment they may make, um, at, at least from in the first instance, is fairly cold. This is something entirely different and something that maybe an organisation staff can go and have an away day in the emerging wood. Maybe people's staff can go and help plant it. There's all those social benefits and, and all about people's well-being, which a lot of companies are really looking at the stress of work and the need to get together. And I, I believe that woodland creation and management can be part of that. I'm, I'm sure you do too. We, we, the, the Forestry Commission who fund, uh, or, or there are different regulators in the UK, but in England it's the Forestry Commission, and they're really interested in, in how we score things, as are the government departments involved in the environment. And we have a forest school there to educate. You know, there's a forest school being built on the site as well, um, and it's got this ready backdrop of classroom to teach all of these things as well. So, and we, and you, if you, if you have, if you have any involvement in research and development or forest schools or education within your design, that scores more highly on our metrics. Yes. What are the issues of supply aside from imports? Well, the, the increase in demand is fantastic, but of course it has to come from somewhere and you can't just click your fingers and get kiln dried sawn boards off the shelf the moment you want them they've got to be felled and dried and sawn and provided so it isn't it is a it is not always possible to meet demand with the right supply but and we do we are very honest about that when we have conversations with people who suddenly want to have a, <clears throat> a new procurement policy however we don't make as much of the trees that we've got growing. There's more, much more we could do. We don't add value here. So it's not all about just having more. It's sometimes about having better. And we don't use also a lot of the small wood that we grow into high value products. But if you break down a small piece, a, a, a piece of wood and you put it into smaller pieces and you uh, fix it together, glue it together, laminate it, 
you can make all kinds of Wizzo materials and it's done across the world. But we, in the United Kingdom, we don't have a strong manufacturing base. So if you ask me what the main barrier to supply is in the United Kingdom, it's what I call secondary processing. So not the sawmilling, but, but somebody who turns it into a finished product that can be used in say construction or other joinery products, et cetera, or even furniture. And we have several research programs to solve and break down those barriers. And a lot of them, we, a lot of our conversations are about things like machinery and mm. skills. It's about machinery and skills and techniques. It's not about whether we can get the material or not. It's about actually how do we how do we turn this material we have into things that we're 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 importing or we need or might be made out of steel, concrete, plastic, or other products. And it, there, the world will know about cross-laminated timber and laminated beams and block boards and plywood. We don't make any of those in the UK at scale. Well, one of the problems is a disconnect between people thinking about an object and where it comes from. And that in turn has led to a move away, which I hope is changing, of people working into trades and in um, crafts and apart from as a hobby. Do you know what I think we need? We need great British woodwork programme on TV. There was one about pottery. There's a great British sewing bee. Why not the great British bodging? How great would that be? It, it would. I, do you know what? And I think, you know, if, if you look at the numbers on things like YouTube and other sort of social media where people watch people making things out of wood, it's absolutely extraordinary engagement. Well, if you really want to go out on a walk Or if you're stuck on a cruise liner in New York And if it's people we can't see while in this virtual reality You may as well download an episode of Archery Lady Talks Marvellous, yes. marvellous idea Moving on to something that is slightly political but actually i don't think it's more i don't think it's directed at any particular government it's just something we need to do in the united kingdom and in many parts of the world billions have been invested into things like renewable energy so offshore wind farm is a classic example which would not have happened in around the shores of the united kingdom without a huge multi-billion pound investment program from the from the from the government we need that same thing into how we make wood. It's not a question of, there are some things available, but quite frankly, factories that currently saw timber need to have much more investment in order to take it to that secondary processing level. There are some that are doing it, but they're real shining rare lights. And then the other thing is you need to look at the manufacturing sector that do other things which have nothing to do with wood, but bring them into our sector because it's a growing sector. Maybe their sector's struggling for whatever. Maybe it's because of things like climate change and the products they're making are not so carbon friendly. Well, there should be a huge program of getting those organizations and businesses to invest. They can't do it on their own. I don't I do believe this is a role of, of government to intervene to kickstart this. And I'm talking a big program too, like we did with offshore renewable and look, offshore renewable energy now is feeding itself. And we need to do the same thing with our processing sector in the UK, because beyond sawmills, it's it's it thins out dramatically. And we need CNC machining. We need laser cutting. We need um, robots. We need all kinds of machines that will make these amazing products that we currently ship in from abroad. We're rather good at manufacturing and um, that kind of material science. Um, so if anybody's listening who's thinking of doing a degree in technology or material science, the wonderful world of wood and the machinery, I mean, you can make glass from wood, you can you can do so many different things from wood, there's all sorts of innovation going on at the moment. So I think it's at every level, um, from deep science, emerging technology, through right the way through, equally valuable to people rediscovering skills. Um, such as how to build an elm barn and raise it as a community, which was a subject of an earlier um, podcast, The Barn Club. Um, everything all the way through. I'm, I'm loving the idea. If anyone works in um, television, the great British bodger. It's got to happen. You know, let's get it out there to, to people that there are all sorts of different ways of working with wood. That's brilliant. And 
It's so diverse, the work that Grown in Britain does, right the way through making sure that people um, are, are using the right timber, that they're planting the right sort of woods, that we're thinking deeply through research and development. Um, there are so many different aspects to the work you do that you have an annual week coming up, don't you? Tell us about Grown in Britain week and when is it? Well, back it, it's its second week in October, which which obviously slightly varies depending on when the Monday of the second mm. week of October is that we think is appropriate. But it um, starts on the tenth of October uh, this this year, um, and yeah, we when when we were forming Growing Britain and realizing that people love what we're all about, it was a societal thing. We thought, right, we want a, we want an annual celebration, and we thought about the day and and what have you, and we went for uh, because there's there's so many. A variety of things we have a week yeah and um we have a, a we we are a partner with the forestry commission and the cla which represents landowners in this country we we have partnered for many years now on the national forestry conference so we part the highlight of the week is on wednesday the 12th which is the national forestry conference and then around that there'll be um other things going on, um, such as potentially the publication of a podcast like this or a sawmill might have an open day. We run competitions. Quite a lot of businesses do a sort of discount. They'll say, right, for Grown in Britain week, you can get your certified plants half price or something like that or timber. And um, for my sins, I will go and probably meet the great and the good who decide on the policies around timber and forestry. Um, usually on the Monday and um, get get that kind of engagement with with politicians and decision makers and then we do quite often a big social media push as well so that we can engage with you know the whole of whole of society and and we will this year I think get more engaged I think with younger people in education and some of those universities that we've talked about but just if anyone's listening who's, who's part of the supply chain in the United Kingdom you know let get in touch with us we, we, our websites we're very accessible and there may be something that you can do that will really take it take it to an, another level but it's a it's a time to to celebrate uh, for sure and so yeah really looking forward to it um second week in october people can go to your website groaningbritain.org and find out what's going on and how they can get involved but anybody who's not working professionally with timber or part of a procurement team what can the average person do to keep up the good work? Well, anybody can get involved because forest products are in our daily lives. I mean, if you're in the city or you're in the country or wherever you are, just look around you. There'll be something made out of something that's come from a forest. Um, and so one thing that you can do if you're somebody who maybe looks on the back of food labels to see where your food comes from, when you buy something, made out of a forest product whether it's charcoal for your barbecue whether it's a piece of timber whether it's even a pencil or just have a look and see whether it tells you where it came from and um if you're we have a directory on our website if you want to buy something you can you can go on there and you can find out where you can buy these things as well so people can get involved if they're purchasers and they're users and everybody's a user just ask the question where does it come from the other thing, if if that if that is not that easy, what about if you are taking if you if you want some exercise? There's nothing better if you're able is to take outdoor exercise with trees. It's just part of lifting our spirits. It's as you said earlier, it's built in culturally built into human beings. Get amongst the trees during the week. Appreciate the start of autumn, starting to drop those leaves down. The colours changing um really 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 beautiful and if you are part and, and if you're part of the, any part of the supply chain whether you work in a big business or not and your business uses timber or wood might not go back into work the next day and talk to your procurement manager or director or the boss or somebody or you if you've got that responsibility and go in and just check what you're doing what are you saying what are you buying we all make decisions every day about what we're buying and what we're using. And I think people are becoming increasingly aware of the carbon footprint um, and a less wasteful society. But we've got a long way to go and, and it's a really, really good message. Um, finally, Dougal, what is your dream scenario? If you could wave a magic wand, obviously made of wood, what would you wish to see? Okay, well, I would like the public sector's 
procurement policies to be as uh, adapted to the things we've been talking about as the private sector, actually. It's a really boring answer. It's not exactly a dreamy answer. It's, it's just, I know it's a massive barrier when um, the, the government of a nation doesn't say, I want to look local first. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's really, really important. And, and I say it for good reasons, because we haven't got there yet in this, in this country. Um, my other dream is that when, and I don't know whether this happens in other countries, but I suspect it does. If a family is driving along a lane in the countryside and there's a crop of corn, and there's a combine harvester cutting the corn, it's, it's a time to stop and take a picture. Maybe one of the children might say, on my holidays, I saw a combine harvester and draw it and show it to the teacher on the, on the first day back after school term starts. And then next to the field is a, a timber harvester, not a combine harvester, but a timber harvester cutting the trees down in the woodland next door. And the car will stop. And it's not a picture and a photograph and something to show the teacher. It's, I'm going to ring up the council. I'm going to oh. ring somebody and get it stopped. I'm going to get that stopped because it's wrong. But the combine harvester is probably in a field of wheat with very little biodiversity, lots of chemicals poured on it, erosion washing the soils into the watercourses, does nothing for carbon. That forest being harvested is putting light to the forest floor, is pollinating the crops, is creating fantastic materials to build our houses that we live in, and is offsetting the carbon caused by all of the other things we do in our life. One of those things gets a picture for the teacher. One of those things gets a complaint phone call. What I would like to change is that those two things are swapped. Dougal, what a great dream scenario. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And for the phrase, Charismatic Carbon. Google Driver, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. <laughs> so, yeah, she's done it again. You heard it here first. Anybody who works in TV, you're out there. I know you're out there. The Great British Bodger. Now, come to me, um, come to me first, because honestly, I can tell you a few stories about bodging stuff. I'm very cheap, I'm incredibly available, and I can probably tell you some stories that'll make your hair curl. Two reminders from me before you go. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and family, and you can consider subscribing to the show to make sure you don't miss any episodes. You can find us on our YouTube channel, which is SHA, Sharon Hosegood Associates. Uh, you can get us on Instagram, which is at TreeLadyUK, and on the website, treeladytalks.co.uk. Thanks for listening. 